The world is changing fast, but you can learn it at a slower pace. Special English. Dear listeners, celebrations for this year's Spring Festival are in full swing across China, and we would like to invite you to join the festivities and the cheerful cultural event with Special English. So for this week's program, we will continue to share some fun customs related to this important traditional Chinese holiday and their cultural background. The speed might be slow, but the fun is real. For today's program, we'll get to know some ancient yet breathtaking Chinese winter sports, the marvelous Chinese opera, and a flower that thrives in the winter cold. Ancient Ice Games from China Ice hockey, curling, speed skating, figure skating. These are all familiar names of Winter Olympics events. But what about ice football or speed skating archery? Yes, they do exist, or at least they did. These games were very popular in ancient China, especially during the Qing Dynasty, which lasted from 1644 to 1911. At that time, in the capital city of Beijing, there was a popular and intense winter activity called Bingxi, which means ice games. More precisely, Bingxi refers to various sports and recreational activities on ice, such as ice skating, ball games, archery, and even acrobatics performed on ice. Just imagine how fascinating and thrilling these ice sports were in ancient China. Back then, ice sports were very different from what they are today. In fact, beyond games or competition, ice sports in ancient China were considered performing arts, embodying not only fun and passion, but also imperial pride. There are several versions of stories about how Bingxi, or ice games, came into existence in China. A rather reliable one is that the Manchu people living in northeastern China were the major contributors to the development of the games. As some of you may know, the northeastern region is arguably the coldest part of China with long winters, mountainous, and dense forests. So, these favorable geographical conditions helped people living there to master excellent ice skating and skiing skills. Okay, the story goes that when the Qing Dynasty founder Nu Arhachi unified his regime in northern China, 
he recruited many young people who were good at ice skating and skiing, building sort of a special force for an edge in winter warfare. They then began incorporating ice skating into military exercises. The peak era for Bing Shi was during the rule of Qianlong, the longest reigning emperor in China's history. Qianlong loved ice sports so much that he even made Bing Shi a national tradition. During Qianlong's era, a grand Bing Shi gala with many exciting events was held almost every winter in Beijing. Skillful ice skaters were selected to perform on frozen royal lakes each year. The events during the competition were super fun and thrilling, and some of them were pretty much the prototypes of ice sports events that you can see in the Winter Olympics today. For example, there's an event called Qiangdeng, which is similar to speed skating. The destination was set close to the seat of the emperor, with contestants first starting about 1,000 or 1,500 meters away. When the race started, they skated very fast to cross the finish line. Another major event in the ice sports meeting during Qianlong's ruling was a ball game on ice. A mind-blowing event would be Zhuanlong Shizhu, which basically means to shoot at balls while skating along a winding line. So yeah, contestants were skaters slash archers. Before the game started, some gates would be put up on the frozen lake, each with a colored ball hung from the frame. Then the skaters used bow and arrows to shoot at the balls as they skated by the gates. During this process, they also performed a variety of tricks to entertain and impress the imperial audience. Prizes would be given to each team in accordance to the number of arrows stuck in the balls. Besides all these, there were also ball games similar to football and rugby on ice, which not only demanded excellent skating skills, but also agility and courage from the players, as these events involved speed skating and were very physical. Now you have a feel 
for the beauty of ancient ice games and how much Emperor Qianlong loved them. Today in Beijing, though most people would practice skating on indoor ice rinks, you can still see people having fun ice skating or playing ice games in parks outdoors. Though some of the adventurous games of tough Qing dynasty warriors have remained locked in the annals of history, you can still see people practicing different skating stunts skillfully, perhaps in search of inspiration from ancient skating styles. This is Special English. You've been listening to programs from CGTN Radio. CGTN Radio. We invite you to visit us online for more audio, pictures, and in-depth reports. At radio.cgtn.com, you can access a wide range of programs and find your favorite news, talk, features, entertainment shows, and podcasts. Hear the difference with CGTN Radio. This is Special English. Plum Blossoms, another friend of the winter. As we mentioned in last week's program, Chinese people love to keep daffodils at home in winter, especially during the spring festival. Well, guess what? It's also a time to admire the hardy plum blossom. As another plant that thrives in the cold, the plum blossom enters its peak season in late winter or early spring when it's still cold in most parts of the country. Chinese people admire the plant for its endurance of the coldness. It's easy to find elements of plum blossoms in Chinese people's daily life. It is a common plant in parks, gardens, or even in one's own yard. There are so many poems, idioms, stories, and essays about plum blossoms. But since when did Chinese people fall in love with this plant? It was during the Song Dynasty about 1,000 years ago that the aesthetic significance of plum blossoms gradually rose as the Chinese literati began to make a connection between their own moral characters and the virtues of plum blossoms. Two names deserve special highlight during this development. One is Lin He Jing, and the other is Su Dongpo. Lin He Jing was famous for two popular lines singing of plum blossoms, which can be translated as, Upon the clear shallow stream, 
the slant shadows of plum blossoms lie, while its faint fragrant floats in the dusky moonlight. In this poem, the poet combined plum blossoms with water, moon, and night to display the elegance and serenity of plum blossoms. Besides Lin He Jing, the other man of letters that I have to mention is Su Dong Po, who is definitely one of the most famous and well-loved ancient Chinese poets. In his works, plum blossoms were praised for their sentimental yet self-contained nature. They were combined with the literati's emotions of loneliness, nobility, and elegance. And also, because Su Dong Po was demoted several times and had a long experience of desolation, plum blossoms were sung for the character of perseverance and endurance. Ever since then, plum blossoms became more and more of a cultural symbol in Chinese civilization. There is a saying widely known among Chinese people. It goes, the fragrance of plum blossoms comes from bitterness and coldness, delivering a message that souls are tempered in the depth of experience and growth in inner strength and unyielding courage. As a friend in winter, the plum blossom most vividly represents the value of endurance as life ultimately overcomes the vicissitudes of time. You're listening to Special English. Why is Peking Opera the quintessence of Chinese culture? For fans of classical music and musical theaters out there, you may find Western operas both elegant and entertaining. But what if I told you that in China, there is also a traditional type of opera so exquisite that even the Qing Dynasty royal court couldn't get enough of it. Yes, that's right. I'm talking about the famous Peking Opera. Having been inscribed on the UNESCO list of intangible cultural heritage of humanity over a decade ago, Peking Opera has become an unforgettable curiosity for people around the globe. And when it comes to Peking Opera performances, the highlights for many are its unique tones of singing, colorful facial makeup, and flamboyant costumes, which are all features of this beautiful art form. But how did this opera type come into being and to represent the quintessence of Chinese culture over 
its development. To answer this question, let us begin with a story from 200 years ago, which marks the birth and growth of one of the greatest cultural relics of China. The story begins at the end of the 18th century. The four great Anhui troops traveled all the way up north and entered Beijing to celebrate the 80th birthday of Qianlong Emperor of the Qing Dynasty. They brought the most popular southern music style and plays along with them, and it wasn't long before these Anhui troops gained massive popularity among their northern audiences. In the meantime, this also encouraged many other folk music artists to join their troops. Slowly incorporating the styles of all kinds of local operas, the early stage of Peking opera was taking shape. Unlike Western operas, which tend to depict realistic sceneries on stage, Peking opera often uses the least props necessary to narrate a story. It is certainly much easier for stage setup and removal. Just pack up and go. With movable sets and scenes, the troops were able to move with greater flexibility between theaters, performing venues, or even between cities. And since then, their performances and all the elements that went along were gradually acknowledged nationwide and later on became the most dominant form of Chinese opera. Thus, thanks to the royal favor and its own flexibility in performance, Peking opera was able to attract the highest number in audiences and remains popular across a very wide area in China. Now, so much for the historical side of it. Let's turn on the lights and look at Peking Opera on a real stage. Like mentioned earlier, the most eye-catching aspects of the performance are the bright colors, which are reflected, first and foremost, on the costumes. With exquisite embroidery, vivid patterns, and rich colors, the costumes exhibit a sense of luxury and beauty while enhancing the artistic visual effect for the audience. When it comes to the singing, however, Peking opera can claim its essence as its own. The librettos are usually composed according to a strict set of rules that prize form and rhyme, and the tunes and beats can only change swiftly according to the development of the plot. 
Maybe the different tones of singing sound more or less the same for beginning ears, but Peking opera performers actually strive for individualized singing styles. Some of you might have heard of Mei Lanfang, who was and still is one of the legends of Peking opera. Clear in his pronunciation and rich in emotion, Master Mei's tune of singing is loved by so many that his style was called the Mei style, which is still studied and performed by apprentices nowadays. Now that you have a general idea of why Peking opera represents. The quintessence of Chinese culture. Why not search for it on your music app and maybe listen to an aria to check it out. This is special English. That is the end of this edition of Special English. To recap, I will read one of the stories at normal speed. Please listen carefully. Plum blossoms, another friend of the winter. As we mentioned in last week's program, Chinese people love to keep daffodils at home in winter, especially during the spring festival. Well, guess what? It's also a time to admire the hardy plum blossom. As another plant that thrives in the cold, the plum blossom enters its peak season in late winter or early spring when it's still cold in most parts of the country. Chinese people admire the plant for its endurance of the coldness. It's easy to find elements of plum blossoms in Chinese people's daily life. It's a common plant in parks, gardens, or even in one's own yard. There are so many poems, idioms, stories, and essays about plum blossoms. But since when did Chinese people fall in love with this plant? It was during the Song Dynasty, about 1,000 years ago, that the aesthetic significance of plum blossoms gradually rose. As the Chinese literati began to make connection between their own moral characters and the virtues of plum blossoms, two names deserve special highlight during this development. One is Lin Hejing, and the other is Su Dongpo. Lin Hejing was famous for two popular lines singing of plum blossoms, which can be translated as, "Upon the clear, shallow stream, the slant shadows of plum blossoms lie." While its faint fragrance floats in the dusky moonlight, in this poem, the poet combined plum blossoms with water, moon, and night to display the elegance and serenity of plum blossoms. Besides Lin Hejing, the other man of letters that I have to mention is Su Dongpo, who is definitely one of the most famous and well-loved ancient Chinese poets. In his works, plum blossoms were praised for their sentimental yet self-contained nature. They were combined with the literati's emotions of loneliness, nobility, and elegance. And also, because Su Dongpo was demoted several times and had a long experience of desolation, plum blossoms were sung for the character of perseverance and endurance. Ever since then, plum blossoms became more and more of a cultural symbol in Chinese civilization. There's a saying widely known among Chinese people. It goes. The fragrance of plum blossoms comes from bitterness and coldness, delivering a message that the souls are tempered in the depth of experience and grow in inner strength and unyielding courage.
As a friend in winter, the plum blossom most vividly represents the value of endurance as life ultimately overcomes the vicissitudes of time. This is the end of today's program. I hope you'll join us every day to learn English at a slower pace. And last but not least, happy Spring Festival to all of you. I wish you an auspicious, healthy, and prosperous Chinese New Year. <laughs>